0: Pushkin. Hey there listeners, Tim Harford here. I wanted to introduce you to another podcast we really like here at Cautionary Tales. It's called I Spy, and it's made by our friends over at Foreign Policy. The idea is pretty simple. On each episode, they get one former spy from around the world tell the story of one operation. Then they edit out the questions so that all you hear is the spy describing the mission. I don't want to give too much away. I will just say that each episode, each story is incredibly dramatic. The host of the show is Margot Martindale. You might remember her from the FX show The Americans. She played Claudia, the KGB handler. Anyway, as a bonus to you loyal listeners, we are inserting one of the episodes of iSpy into our feed. It's called The Cassandra, and it features a CIA analyst posted in Vietnam in the last days of the war. If you like it, and I did, you can hear part two over at iSpy. And that's it. Enjoy the show.
1: This is I, Spy, the show from foreign policy, where spies tell their stories.
2: It turned out this guy had wormed his way into the center of the communist command for the Saigon area and the Delta. He had access to all their secrets. This guy, T.U. Hackle, from our standpoint, was the walking equivalent of having a spy in Hitler's bunker. From foreign
1: policy, welcome back to I Spy. On each episode, we get one former intelligence operative to tell the story of one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. Frank Snepp was a CIA analyst based in Saigon during the Vietnam War. In April of 1975, he discovered that North Vietnamese forces were preparing a large-scale attack on Saigon. Snepp wrote reports about the coming offensive based on information from his best source, a communist defector named T.U. Hackle. But the higher-ups refused to believe it. When the attack began later that month, Americans conducted a frenzied evacuation, leaving behind many Vietnamese allies and marking a humiliating end to the war. This is SNEP's story about the fall of Saigon.
2: Early April 1975, four weeks before the end, the Ambassador Graham Martin and the CIA Station Chief Tom Pogar were convinced for various reasons that either we could win the war with what we had left or that we could negotiate a surrender. And the question was, what were our best assets telling us? The first guy that we needed to check in with was a Hanoi source. I had been, for the past two years, exclusively responsible for debriefing and briefing this asset. He came into Saigon, snuck into Saigon. CIA caterers laid on a big, sumptuous lunch to make up for the slim pickings he had to endure in Hanoi. And so he opened up, and what he said simply was this. The communists are on a a blood scent. They are going to go for military victory in the shortest possible time. Well, there seemed to be an absolute thumbs down on the idea that we could negotiate our way out of this madness. After talking to the source, I raced back to the embassy to let my immediate superior, Tom Polgar, know what I had learned. And I briefed Ambassador Martin. I had been doing this job now for the past three years, I had risen to become the ambassador's chief briefing officer. I was extremely close to him. I had once dated his daughter and survived the breakup to remain in the ambassador's good graces. The CIA station chief, Tom Pogar and I were very close because Polgar loved to use me to spy on Martin, and Martin use me to spy on Polgar. So I take this report back to the embassy, and I tell Polgar what's going on. Polgar didn't like it at all. He didn't like to hear that the communists weren't a blood scent, and that there was probably no chance for negotiations. So he tried to minimize this intelligence, and he proceeded with the idea that we could somehow sucker the other side into negotiations. Now, Graham Martin didn't like this message either. He didn't want to hear that the communists were barreling their way in. Martin had convinced himself with the help of his military advisors at the Defense Attaché's office that Saigon could rally the forces that had been salvaged from the communist offensive up north, that they could build a defense line just north of Saigon, 40 miles out, hold the North Vietnamese advance there until the monsoons intruded to slow the communists down, bog them down, and they would be in a position to fight again another day. So both of them were absolutely averse to evacuation planning, because evacuation planning could bring on chaos and confusion. Chaos and confusion would make it impossible to negotiate a settlement on Saigon's terms. So I took away from this meeting, boy, we're in trouble, and we should accelerate planning for an evacuation. We should start reducing the American community, which is about 6,000 strong. That included businessmen, backpackers, contractors, spooks, diplomats, whatever. We should begin reducing this number so that we would have only small chopper loads in the end. And time was absolutely of the essence because we had the entire North Vietnamese army within a a drive, an hour's drive of downtown Saigon, so if we didn't begin planning for an evacuation right away, we were going to be in terrible trouble. In addition to the Americans in Saigon, we had another evacuation priority, the Vietnamese. And Polgar, my boss, asked me at one point to try to compute the number of Vietnamese we'd have to evacuate in an emergency. And I said, holy smoke, how do I do this? Well, I sort of spitballed and I said to myself, well, we have the people who've worked for U.S. agencies over the years. If we factor in the number of family members they're likely to want to take out, then here's the figure, 1.7 million people. CIA Director Colby and Kissinger both said honor dictated that we bring out a lot of Vietnamese. But no one wanted 1.7 million to deal with, so the president compromised. He said, we will arrange for an evacuation in an emergency of 6,000 Americans and 200,000 Vietnamese. Within a week, I met with our second major intelligence asset. His code name was T.U. Hackle. T.U. Hackle was an extraordinary man. I mean, extraordinary. T.U. Hackle had been recruited by South Vietnamese police in 1960. He had been a devoted communist, had defected from the communists, because they were too bloodthirsty for him. And the police had picked him up, loved his background. They told him, look, we'll send you back into hostile territory, into enemy territory, posing as a loyal Viet Cong, but you'll be working for us as an informant. He agreed to that, and eventually the CIA began to share control responsibility for him. And it turned out this guy had wormed his way into the center of the communist command for the Saigon area and the Delta. He had access to all their secrets. This guy, T.U. Hackel, from our standpoint, was the walking equivalent of having a spy in Hitler's bunker. He would meet with his Vietnamese case officers in his home province, which was close to the Communist Command, but he would come to Saigon to meet with his American case officers and me, and his travel arrangements were nothing but cinematic. He would go to a hospital in his home province of Tainan in Tainan City. He'd get on a gurney, pull a sheet over him, and pretend to be dead. Then his Vietnamese case officers would haul him out to an aircraft, put that gurney on the aircraft, and he would come to Saigon to meet with me and or his American case officers. He often came dressed as a woman and he was addicted to Budweiser beer. The United States had dropped Budweiser beer over the Ho Chi Minh trail system from time to time to try to slow down North Vietnamese infiltrators. So Budweiser was a big favorite among the communists. And this guy, this double agent, T.U. Hackle, loved it. He also adored Salem cigarettes, which were Ho Chi Minh's favorites. So before getting down to business, he'd insist on savoring these delicacies. And when he was done, he would begin to talk Turkey. T.U. Hackel said that the communists were bent on total military victory. He said that they were going to seize all the territory north of Saigon within the next few days and would be looking for any opportunity to slam into the capital itself and take it militarily. Most importantly, he said explicitly that all the talk of negotiations was a pure sham, a deception tactic, engineered by Hanoi to throw us off balance. Now, what that meant was that Polgar was... Off as rocker, if he assumed the communists were going to negotiate a surrender. T. U. Hackel was telling us the communists had had it with the negotiations. Now, T. U. Hackel told us something else. Key, he said, the communists had captured American aircraft and South Vietnamese aircraft up country. And that they were moving those aircraft within range of Saigon. That was amazing news. The communists had never flown aircraft in South Vietnam. They were picking up our own aircraft, South Vietnamese aircraft, and they were going to use it against us. The communists are going to bring airstrikes and they're going to bring artillery on Tonsonute Air Base. That's Saigon's primary air base. That's where we'd have to mount an airlift. And he said, they're gonna be in Saigon in time to celebrate Ho Chi Minh's birthday, mid-May. And I said, "When do you think they're gonna begin this attack? In about a week. In about a week, I was blown away. When I finished up the report I wrote, based on what I gleaned from T.U. Hackle's report, I made clear that all signs pointed towards an immediate attack on Saigon. Polgar scratched out attacks on Saigon or against Saigon, inserted the phrase in and around Saigon. That's where they would attack. So, in effect, he took the edge off of the reporting in this regard. It was a terrible situation. We had the best intelligence about what the communists were going to do. This is the death knell from the best agent we had, but there was no receptivity to it in Washington.
1: You're listening to iSpy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to iSpy. We return to Frank Snap, a CIA analyst based in Saigon, in the final weeks of the Vietnam War.
2: When I got Hackle's report and I realized that the ambassador wouldn't believe it, I broke all the rules of secrecy and I began delivering the message that Hackle had given to me to everybody who would listen. I went to press corps in Saigon. I sent messages to friends at the State Department and the CIA through snatch phone calls on official lines. I did everything I could to get the message out. I told Colgar, we got to send this to Washington. Finally he agreed to let me send it out through a low priority operational channel. That's an agency sewer pipe. Normally nothing of importance ever goes out that way. When that report landed in Washington, it sent shockwaves through the government. It was immediately upgraded. It was shown to the president, appeared in the president's daily brief, almost immediately and it galvanized the determination of some people in Washington to prepare for a major evacuation. Kissinger immediately ordered Martin to reduce the number of Americans in Saigon immediately to 1100 so that they could be accommodated by a few chopper loads. The Navy sent planners to Saigon to reconfigure the embassy and the defense attache's compound to receive the big helicopters from the fleet. One of the problems was nobody wanted to leave without Vietnamese friends or girlfriends, but there were immigration restrictions disallowing that. The South Vietnamese government vetoed the departure of, of any vital Vietnamese, and that meant everybody. So we had this stasis. There was no incentive for Americans to voluntarily leave, as they were invited to do. And Martin refused to order them out because he thought that would create chaos. So it sort of fell to some of us and people like me who had access to the secrets to let everybody know what was going on. Now, certainly by mid-April, because a Black airlift was developing and people were being smuggled onto aircraft and there were commercial flights heading out with lots of people aboard. There was the knowledge that there was an evacuation and, you know, it was available and there was this the seat space on flying machines and maybe we should get out, but there was no urgency to it. I tried to begin to slip out Vietnamese friends, but the problem was There was no organization to the boarding operations at Tonsonute, getting people onto aircraft. There was chaos in the boarding areas, and there were no orders. The people who worked for the defense attaché's office were allegedly in charge of handling evacuation efforts and the drawdown and the sending out of non-essential Americans. But they took seat space available to them And they gave the seats to Vietnamese girlfriends, drinking companions. So it was a horrible situation. We had no order to the evacuation procedures, such as they existed. And when I began passing the bad news around, some people began uh, volunteering to get out. But it did not change Martin's mind because he believed that we had time. He said, mm, I believe we have time for an evacuation, a leisurely evacuation, maybe over two or three weeks. This was about four days before the collapse of Saigon. In fact, Martin and Polgar now were dead set on arranging a negotiated settlement based on getting rid of the president of the country, Nguyen Van Thieu, because they were convinced that once they got Nguyen Van Thieu, out of the country, the communists would settle for a peace. And that's exactly what they did. Martin and Polgar asked me to write a new assessment of the military situation. They said, make it as scary as you can, because we're going to use it to terrorize Nguyen Van Tieu into resigning. Martin took that assessment to Tieu. Tieu read it. He was persuaded he had indeed lost the mandate of heaven. And on April 21st, the evening of April 21st, he went on television and told the country, I'm leaving, I'm stepping down. Now, this was good news to Martin and Polgar. The way is now clear, they thought, to open negotiations with the communists. So Martin calls me into his office the morning of April 25th, and he says, Frank, I've got an assignment for you. At this point, I was surprised he was even talking to me because I was in such disagreement with him. He said, this evening, you are going to smuggle Nguyen Van you, to Tonsunut Air Base so he can catch his black flight out of the country. Just before twilight, I showed up at the Prime Minister's residence just outside Tonsunut Air Base to pick two up. The limousine that I was to drive with two aboard was a reinforced Chevrolet with altered license plates to disguise that this was an official vehicle. Two showed up. He was in a beautifully tailored gray suit. His face was oiled. His hair slicked back. He'd been drinking. He slips into the back of the limousine I was driving. And one of my CIA colleagues, a retired general, slid in next to him. He was a very good friend of Chu's. And just as the door slammed to the passenger compartment, some of Two's aides came racing out of nowhere, lugging suitcases and flung them into the trunk of the limousine. And I heard the clank of metal on metal and I said, oh, that's got to be that's got to be gold. I get in the limousine, I take off, the streets of Saigon are totally blacked out and deserted except for infinite number of roadblocks. I knew this was really dangerous because everybody in the universe was out to kill two. His right-wing opponents, the communists, and everybody in between. I was armed to the teeth and I thought, boy, this is my epitaph. This is the way I'm going to go out. The CIA general in the backseat of the car introduced me to you as a high-class chauffeur, and they began bantering about good times together. And I thought, this is surreal. And we passed a road marker, a monument to American war dead. It read, Allied sacrifice will never be forgotten. I looked back using the rearview mirror. I looked at, back at Tew and he was crying. He was crying. And I drove on. Thank God we made it, we were way through the roadblocks. I don't know how it happened. I pulled out onto the tarmac. It was totally blacked out and I cut my headlights and I nearly ran over Tom Pogar, my boss. I didn't see him. He, ran, he was running across the tarmac. I pull up to the aircraft. And two leans over the seat and grasps my hand. It was iron grip. And he said, Messi, thank you, thank you. Two jumped out of the car, raced for the aircraft. Martin later told me that the only thing he had said to two was goodbye. And he was rejoicing because he believed T.U.'s departure would change everything. It would nullify the meaning of T.U. Hackel's report. It would open the way to negotiation. And the steam began to go out of evacuation efforts.
1: Frank Snepp spent eight years in the CIA. He wrote about his experience in Vietnam in the book Decent Interval. You'll hear part two of his story in our next episode. iSpy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor for news and podcasts is Dan Efron. Our iSpy team includes Rob Sachs and Amy McKinnon. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us. iSpy at foreignpolicy.com iSpy is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in not just espionage, but smart geopolitical news and analysis from Washington and around the world, please consider subscribing. iSpy listeners can get a 10% discount by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code PODCAST at checkout. Next week on iSpy... SNAP boards one of the last American helicopters to leave Saigon.
2: We began heading towards the coast, and the communists were firing. And somebody in the helicopter screamed, we're taking fire, we're going to go down. I was beaten.
1: That's next week on I Spy. I'm Margo Martindale.